But certainly the biggest weakness of the Second International was the gap that developed between theory and practice, between word and deed. The gap between word and deed widened into a canyon with the onset of World War I in 1914, in clear violation of all the Second International's resolutions the main parties of the Second International renounced their past pledges to oppose capitalist war and lined up behind their government's war efforts. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out this evening to a really great event, the book launch for Under the Social's Banner, Resolutions of the Second International, 1889-1912, edited by Mike Tabor. Uh, We're going to have a really great discussion uh, with you all between our panelists. And, uh, you know, before I dive into it, I just want to say how uh, excited I am that this book is out. It should hopefully continue and deepen the conversation that um, really has been uh, bubbling up over the last 10 years um, and more so even in the last few about what socialism is and in that process, what the legacy of the Second International is. We have a lot to thank for Mike Taper for putting these documents together. Um, which will allow organizers from different tendencies um, and historians to judge for themselves what activists uh, hundred years ago were doing uh, around many of the issues that we face today. So with no further ado, um, what I will just briefly do is lay out what the schedule is for tonight, introduce our speakers, and then we'll uh, go into it. So we have three panelists, One of them is myself. Uh, My name is Eric Blanc. I wrote a book, Revolutionary Social Democracy, about um, the Marxists across the Russian empire. And I've written on some of these questions uh, for a while now. We have Anne McShane, who's been involved in Marxist politics for over 30 years. Uh, She has a particular interest in the struggle for women's emancipation within socialist politics, has completed her PhD on the role of the Zenoto, uh, the Women's Department of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in Soviet Central Asia. And she works as a human rights lawyer in Ireland. Uh, She'll speak for 10 minutes um, about the book. Then it's going to be followed by Lars Lee, an independent scholar who lives in Montreal, author of Bread and Authority in Russia, co-author of Stalin's Letters to Molotov, author of a book uh, many of you have probably read or at least heard of or claimed to have read, but uh, hopefully you've read the full thing. Uh, Lenin rediscovered what is to be done in context and the co-editor with Ben Lewis of Zinovian Martov, Head to Head in Hell. Uh, he's also authored a short biography of Lenin and he's working currently on a study of the 1917 revolution that brings out the overlooked role of consensus and continuity in the Bolshevik outlook. Uh, after Lars, I'll speak for 10 minutes as well. And then we'll give it about 15 minutes to Mike Tabor, who's the editor of the book, Under Socialist Banner. Uh, he's edited and prepared a number of books related to the history of the revolutionary and working class movements, from collections of documents of the Communist International 
under Lenin's works by figures such as Trotsky, Malcolm X, and Che Guevara. So with no further ado, I'm going to pass it to Anne. Uh, all yours, Anne. Hi, hi. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me to take part in tonight's meeting. I say tonight because it's 10 o'clock here in Ireland tonight, so a little bit later than all of you over there. So um, the reason I began to study the history of the Soviet women's movement was because of my own uh, experience in the left uh, when I joined the left in Britain uh, over 30 years ago, I was really keen to get involved in issues to do with women's emancipation. And I really wanted to know far more about what our history was. And really, nobody could tell me an awful lot. So then I took the opportunity a number of years ago and I went away and I studied the uh, women's movement and in particular the work of the Genotiel. The, the, women's, uh, uh, the Women's Bureau of the uh, Communist Party of Soviet Union, Central Committee. Anyway, to me, it was just like finding a treasure trove. I actually, you know, I was so happy to see this was our movement, that this was a dynamic, progressive movement, and that it did a lot of things which were far ahead of its time. And it was therefore with the same kind of, you know, happiness that I discovered some of the resolutions that are included in this book put forward by leading members of the Second International on the Women's Question. Now, there are four resolutions uh, in, the, in, in the set of resolutions from 1889 to 1912. And they reflect very much, I think, the issues of the time in relation to the woman question, as well as continuing issues today. What they show is that there was a real movement there, which particularly came from the German comrades, and that that movement was, was very, very determined to make progress. When I say the movement, I mean women and men who were committed to making women's emancipation a central part of the agenda of the Second International. And you go from a situation where in 1891, there's a resolution put forward by a number of women from Russia and uh, the Netherlands and Louise Kotsky from Germany. And it's interesting because in that resolution, they ask, they say, we, we invite we invite the socialist and labor organizations to take up the question of women's equality and to put it in, in their programs. In 1893, then she, she comes forward herself again, Louise Kotsky, and starts to argue more specifically for fundamental rights for women in the workplace and for these to be incorporated into the programs of the trade unions and the socialist parties. And then uh, the question of women's suffrage comes into, onto the agenda in 1904. And here I think we see more forcefulness from the German, from the SPD. And I suppose I think that's partly because of their commitment to the question, but also because they want to centralise the international more and actually get it to do something. Because it seems um, like in 1904 they say, 
you know, we must put this question forward when we're elected representatives. And then in 1907, when they come back to the question again, they're putting forward a resolution from the commission, which is uh, proposed, I believe, by, by Clara Zetkin. It's like a lot more forceful. It goes from we, you know, people must make an issue on this question when they're elected to we must go out, all parties, all organisations must go out and campaign for women's suffrage. So I think, like, you can see the momentum behind the question. You can see the fact that they're becoming more determined. And you can also see the problems that there are in terms of passivity in particular. Um, so... The other thing I wanted to say about this, and this is probably something that's controversial, is that none of these women describe themselves as feminists. Now, I, I, I looked them up uh, when I was reading through the book, and I see many of them now being described as feminists. And I believe the reason they didn't describe themselves as feminists was because they believed that the a question of women's emancipation was part of the struggle for Marxism. And they believe Marxism being a universal project should integrate that question both for men and for women. And I think that perhaps like lots of people will disagree with me on that question, but I still think that that's an important question for us to think about today. So that's one of the issues I think that um, I, I would like um, point to. Uh, not to bash feminists, because, I mean, I've often been described as a feminist myself, but really to make the point that this needs to be inter integrated uh, to the struggle. Then the second point I really wanted to make in terms of the second thread uh, is about the question of immigration. And that's really interesting and it, perhaps like in a different way because we're in a different time in history and immigration at that time is from Europe mostly to Australia and to the and to America and the question of migration I think is less seems to be less to do with like what we have today which is asylum claims and more to do with going to work um, in the United in, in, in America and in Australia and so it seems to be straightforward economic migration. Well, what I think is very interesting and very positive about the Second International is that it says throughout that period, and obviously there is a debate uh, in 1907 uh, where there is a resolution put forward by a representative of the Socialist Party of America, which calls for limited um, uh, restrictions on immigration. But overall, the approach is Look, immigration is as much a part of capitalism as unemployment, as you know, as everything else. Rather than us trying to think about controlling this question, what we need to do is organize. And you can see throughout the resolutions, there are uh, proposals being made. And I would like to ask Mike um, when he comes back about, you know, to what extent these were actually implemented, because... What's interesting about them is that they say, firstly, um, when workers reach America, then they need to be recruited into trade unions and socialist organizations there. Secondly, the trade unions and socialist organizations in their in their you know original their, their country of origin need to connect with the uh, labor and trade union organizations abroad. They need to make real connections. Then they say things like when what we're going to do is we're going to produce leaflets so that when people arrive off the boats 
in America, we have them in leaflets in Italian or in German, and they can that will give them information about practical things, and also it will sign them up to their local union. And they talk about producing leaflets to hand out to workers leaving Italy or Ireland or wherever else from Europe. Um, so these, to me, they seem really innovative because they're being practical, and at the same time, they're saying this: we need an international solution to this question, which doesn't victimise certain sections of the working class. Um, so I, 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 I think I really just want to stress that because I think today one of the problems I see, and as somebody who does represent asylum seekers, is too often we have the attitude of the deserving and the undeserving, and people are into a situation where they have to prove that they were tortured or that they suffered you know discrimination in order to be allowed in to 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 whatever country that they've gone to and you know I mean to me it's a very dehumanizing approach to the question of migration rather than it being liberal it's actually dehumanizing and from my own experience I think there is nothing better than a person who comes to the country and gets a job and gets to know their workmates and starts to get involved in politics or trade union activities or whatever else that they that they are then uh, to really become integrated and part of the uh, local population. And so therefore, I'll finish there. Um, I just think that that was a really innovative, some very innovative policies. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Anne. Uh, I'm going to pass it to Lars. Lars, you're up. Okay, great. Uh, okay, so having only 10 minutes to talk about uh, so many fascinating things in this book that I'm going to uh, skip around. I'm, also, I'm going to skip all the compliments I was going to pay to Mike for the editing job and the annotation and all this stuff. Uh, take that as read. Uh, and uh, so uh, there – and. Uh, one of the things you can learn from this, and, and we just heard it in Anne's talk, is is sort of the progress on various issues, the controversies, and the progress made in the change, uh, women's question of the migration, uh, war, uh, uh, trade union, uh, uh, colonialism, all these fascinating issues. Uh, and that's one thing you can do with it. But the other thing is to look at the basic views, the basic views of the Second International as expressed in these things, this basic outlook, the one that stayed constant, the one that the basic uh, uh, underlying uh, all the other debates. And these are present in, in, in some sense in, uh, better than almost anywhere else, maybe the Airfoot Program book, but that's about it. So, uh, so I, that's the reason I said in my blurb, and I say now that uh, this is a book that is uh, should is is a, is a contribution to the history of Marxism. It's a Marxist Marxist document that that everyone should 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 relate to it. It's it, it's making a statement. It's making a theoretical statement uh, taken as a whole. Uh, and uh, uh, then, so we have the question uh, that is much debated: uh, is uh, uh, Marxism of the Second International? That phrase. Uh, uh, that's a very common phrase, and some of us, including myself, have an allergy to it because it sort of implies that uh, there was only there was uh, a, an overarching view, and that view was opportunistic and reformist, and this sort of thing. Uh, and as it happens. Um, 
there was sort of – this is something that Lenin had an occasion to express his opinion on in 1914. I've been looking at this. Uh, if you people want to look it up, it's an article called Under a False Flag. And uh, so uh, he was – really wanted to make the point very strongly that uh, that there that – there, that, there was opportunism. This is after the war started. So that, yes, there's opportunism, and it's a terrible thing to the Second International. But the real Socialist International was uh, was what he called revolutionary social democracy. Uh, I'm not quite sure he made exactly the same thing as Eric's book, but uh, uh, but that's what that's the phrase he used. And uh, so. So for him, uh, there was a split within the, within the, that the that the real socialist uh, international was expressed in these resolutions, and uh, what's interesting is that that he had an idea of a big. Uh, Lenin had an idea of a sort of cosmic struggle throughout the entire period of the Second International between uh, revolutionary social democracy and. Opportunism. Now, if you look at these uh, uh, resolutions as a whole and try to get it, you will find only. Revolutionary social democracy, the positions that uh, that Lenin uh, agreed with, and the others of of his of his way of thinking, uh, and condemnations of opportunism. So, so officially, uh, the, the, this is what the this is what the um, what the Second International stood for. So you have two ways of looking at this. One is, uh, oh well, it's uh, a bunch of it's just superficial hypocrisy or something, and the other one is to say this is what they this is what they stood for. This is what people believed in. They and they found out with a shock that that the, that they weren't carrying them out in practice. But the, but the, but the principles were good, uh, and uh, that means that someone like Lenin is not, you know, uh, saying uh, the condemning the Second International. He's uh, he's reaffirming. His loyalty to the basic principles that he saw and that are expressed in these resolutions, uh, and there's one uh, one resolution. I'm sort of switching topics now. Am I still can hear? Yeah, uh, that uh, that I, I'd like to go into, uh, and that's one resolution. I'm going to read it. It's a it's in my book on uh, on what is to be done i called it the so, uh, spd or the you know the german party model and later i sort of called this um uh campaignism and i think that this really uh, has is a book that uh, oh, sorry is a, is a resolution that expresses something and it came, this is from 1900 and so i'm sort of wishing mike would have uh written his book or published it two decades ago because i could have quoted this uh, in my book on what is to be done, uh, and 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 said this is what Lenin is all about. This is this is the thing that people, when they read what is to be done without context, they think is so uh, so um, scandalous and heretical. So anyway, let me re- just read this. Socialism, which is, uh, meaning here social democracy, not the social society. So, uh, social democracy has been given the task of constituting the proletariat into an army for this class war. And so it has for its duty, above all, to awaken in it by careful, incessant, and methodical propaganda the consciousness of its own interests and strength, the class, its own interests and strength, and to use for this objective all the means that the existing political and social situation may place in its hands and that in its social democracy's higher conception of justice may suggest. 
Among these means, the Congress suggests political action, universal suffrage, the organization of the proletariat into political groups, trade unions, cooperative societies, mutual assistance uh, societies, circles of art and education, things like singing groups and uh, theatrical groups. It urges the active socialist movement to do everything to combine these means of struggle and education that augment the power of the working class and render it capable of expropriating the bourgeoisie both politically and economically and of socializing the means of production, i.e. you're doing these things in service of a final goal. So that, I think, that that resolution really uh, sums up what the, what the international did. And when I was listening to Anne, she said they, they handed out leaflets. That, that, that's the sort of thing that the international could do and do so well. And uh, if you read through the things, it's almost every time it says, we will launch a campaign to, to, make, to raise people's awareness of this or that issue, women's or migration or war or whatever. And there's another thing about that uh, about that. Um, uh, resolution is uh, the way that uh, if you look ahead to the Soviet Union, and this is a, you will see that that's that is the great one of the great lines of continuity between Soviet society and other communist societies and the Second International. It's precisely because they would they did that all the time. I, I I've called this state monopoly campaignism because it, it 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 takes off from what the Second International is doing and was doing so well but made it in a different context of having it with state power, no competitors, you know, one press, one, uh, and, and putting the entire resources of the state at the disposal of these campaigns and so forth. So, uh, so I, I could read it again and say, look, this is what this, this is what Soviet Union was about. Was using was was, was campaigns, was propaganda, was using all sorts of societies and everything to 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 educate people to and to and to to raise them up and 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 to and give them a sense of their own power and so forth. But of course, that also meant uh, there's a. That there's a, the the negative side of this is that it's in the Soviet Union's case is that uh, of course it meant uh, squishing the free press and 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 uh, eliminating the political liberty which uh, was an inherent part of the uh, SPD model in its original form. Okay, so with that I think I'm up to my around my ten minutes. Uh, so I will uh, sign off and uh, one more to thank Mike for doing this signal service to history and to uh, to activists uh, in this book. Thanks, Lars. Okay. Thank you so much, Lars. Um, okay, so I'm up. I'm going to take off my facilitator hat, put on my panelist discussant hat. Uh, again, just to repeat. Big uh, contribution from Mike to edit this volume. It's going to be um, a tool for folks across the world, really, to use and discuss and debate. So um, I just want to start with that. The, the other aspect of it that becomes really clear is the breadth of issues that are touched on. You know, it's like reading the book. It's almost like the whole gamut of political issues, uh, maybe, you know, with the exception of environmentalism, uh, you know, uh, but but really what, what comes across is the extent to which people a hundred years ago were thinking through similar issues as us today. Um, and getting some sort of perspective on that for us is, is a real contribution. So again, thanks to Mike. I'm going to focus my um, comments on maybe points of disagreement, not with the resolutions, which uh, 
are there and you know are factually accurate, but with some of the interpretation given um, by Mike in the introduction and the afterward. And the the, the first one is, is is a minor point, but it just is maybe a more minor point, but I just want to raise is in your sort of balance sheet of what the limitations of the second international were. One of the points you raised is that well, the second international was was too loose. Uh, it was too federalist. Uh, it was I think it was something akin to somebody said it was akin to a mailbox or something. You know, so it was not really like a coherent uh, acting altogether type international. And so you can look at that different ways. Uh, for those of us who have maybe been in organizations in which there was an attempt to build something like democratic centrism on an international level, I find that the kind of the variety um, and the openness to national differences to be somewhat appealing. And so, it would be, and it's not so clear that the balance sheet of a more centralized international organization is is so uh, much of a clear cut good as maybe is implied there. So that's one question I had for Mike is if you could maybe elaborate on more how you see maybe the tensions or um, between international strategy and national particularity, um, which I think if anything are more serious than even those in the second international um, might have grappled with, uh, at least the left. And so that's what I wanna to come to next. The, the implication in the interpretation and introduction um, that you give is, and it's, I think it's actually the arguments, not just the implication, is that more or less the revolutionary Marxist wing of the Second International was right on almost everything. And uh, the opportunists and centrists were kind of like wrong on a variety of the key issues. And that the continuity of, you know, the correct politics for overcoming capitalism, which uh, ended up going through the revolutionary movements and the common the common turn in particular, and which you argue should be upheld today, really uh, are traced almost exclusively through the revolutionary Marxists. And there's an argument that basically they got it right with some, maybe some limitations, but it's, the argument here is mostly that if only the Second International had been more uh, consistently committed to this line in practice, uh, things would have turned out um, better. In, in some sense, that's clearly true because the Second International um, failed completely to stop the First World War, and, and, and so this is not like a minor default. But politically, I think some of the questions about the relevance of all of these positions is maybe questionable. Um, and to me, the striking thing about reading these resolutions and what leads me to be less optimistic about their uh, overall relevance, uh, at least on the whole, uh, although much of it still remains relevant, I think, but particularly on the questions of reform and revolution, the, the thing that strikes me is the assumption based on these texts and based off of, I think, your introduction, is that there's sort of an imminent revolutionary working class majority that is going to be one relatively soon, or at least, you know, that one should orient to um, politically and make as your basis, that you're gonna win a majority um, to the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism and that the 
sort of propulsion of capitalist social relations together with the propaganda and organization of the party is going to win this majority. And I think we just have to say that the balance sheet of the second international and of all the experience we've had in capitalist democracy since has been that that revolutionary majority didn't arise. Uh, and I don't think you can attribute that primarily or uh, exclusively to like bad theories or sellout leaders, because even if there were sellout leaders, which I do think there were, it still has to be explained why a vast majority of workers ended up not supporting the revolutionary Marxists, but ended up supporting more moderate socialists, including at the peak of the revolutionary wave um, after the First World War. And so the question of like working class moderation is just really hard to overcome. And um, everything hinged, I think, on the theory as far as the transformational process on this imminent majority. When it didn't arise, on the one hand, you had more moderate socialists lean into social democracy because they said, we're not going to win all, you know, a majority of workers to just the propagandizing for the goal. We're going to have to win uh, reforms. We're going to have to do things like Kautsky and the Second International Marxists weren't willing to do, which was, for instance, take state power before a socialist revolution. These resolutions ban, uh, at least from 1904 onwards, ban socialists entering a capitalist government. But think about what that would mean today, for instance. That would mean like we should not tell Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party and other socialists to try to win an election under capitalism. And so, so the, the extent to which the strategies and tactics um, underlining some of these theories were rooted in maybe an overestimation of the um, willingness of a vast majority of society and of the working class to fight for a revolutionary overthrow of capitalism, at least in capitalist democracies, seems to me to be a major stumbling block. And I would I'd like to hear you know, your response to um, why you still see this as relevant, because there's never been a revolution in an advanced capitalist democracy. In the places where there were revolutions after 1914, it was in countries, at least in Europe, it was in countries that were defeated in the war and that weren't really capitalist democracies. These were, you know, places like Germany was a semi-authoritarian constitutional monarchy, same with Austria and Italy to a certain extent. So it's not clear that um, beyond Russia, which had was famously an autocracy, that the inclination of a majority of workers has ever, even at revolutionary moments, been to um, look for the sort of forcible overthrow of the entire state, as opposed to trying to use what existing parliamentary openings uh, existed to push for their interests, including, I think, uh, in the direction of socialism, but in a way that has a more, um, orient more of an orientation towards using and expanding universal suffrage and parliamentary um, democracy against capitalism, which is something that is actually deeply part of the second international projection of what a socialist transformation look like. And that I do think the common turn, which you argue sort of there's a direct continuity. This to me actually seems to me one of the second international's strengths is that it, it articulated a vision of socialism very clearly on um, universal suffrage and majoritarian elections in a way that actually, to a certain extent, the common turn tradition, um, particularly in its earliest phases, broke from. So, in short, I'm not as convinced as you are, Mike, about the um, direct relevance of the particular strategy for overthrowing capitalism that this, um, doc these documents 
sort of embodied. And I would love to hear from you um, why you know you see as this is still relevant, given not just the experience of the Second International, but you know a century since, in which there's been the rise of welfare states, in which uh, there hasn't been, um, as I mentioned, um, strong majorities of the working class looking to forcibly overthrow the entire uh, democratic capitalist states, at least. So I'll leave it at that. And Mike, you. The, the, the floor is yours. We have um, 15 minutes for you to respond and to raise whatever um, other points you'd like. And then we're going to open up for uh, maybe some back and forth between the panelists and the questions from the audience. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, thanks, Eric. Uh, first of all, thanks to Anne, Lars, and Eric for uh, their thought-provoking comments and their words about the, uh, the importance of this book. Um, I appreciate the different opinions and evaluations expressed, um, and hopefully we can, uh, you know, uh, talk about some of them uh, as we go along. Uh, this, in fact, was one of my goals, as I believe this book can help facilitate discussion on these and other questions. The pre-1914 Second International and its legacy has been a subject of debate for over a century. In the last several years, as Eric mentioned, as interest in socialism has grown, contrasting views have been put forward. Some look at the Second International at that time as a model of sorts. Others reject its legacy almost entirely. I don't hold either of those views. My aim has been neither to glorify nor vilify the Second International during the period of 1889 to 1912. Rather, I've sought to locate it within the continuity of the Marxist tradition with all the Second International strengths, weaknesses, and contradictions. As pointed out, un under the socialist banner fills a gap in the historical record. Never before have all the resolutions of the Second International been collected together and published in English. And most of these resolutions have been largely unobtainable. In the book's introduction, I go over why this has been so, describing what I've termed the Second International's conflicted legacy. This in itself is an important question. Perhaps in the discussion, we can come back to it. So how does this new book add to our understanding of the Second International? One conclusion I'll highlight is that the resolutions adopted by Second International Congresses between 1889 and 1912 were, as a whole, grounded in Marxism and contained a clear revolutionary thrust. In the book, I stress a fact that's generally overlooked, which is the key role played by Frederick Engels in the Second International's founding and the important advisory role Engels played up until his death in 1895. As Karl Marx's lifelong collaborator and co-author of the Communist Manifesto, Engels helped link the Second International back to the beginning of the modern revolutionary workers' movement. Under his guidance, the Second International was established as an irreconcilable revolutionary opponent of capitalism. During the years before 1914, the Second International had a number of strengths and achievements to its credit. Perhaps the greatest of these was helping unify the world's working class movement under the banner of Marxism and helping disseminate the Marxist movement's strategic aim. The revolutionary overturn of the capitalist class and its replacement by the rule of the proletariat as a first step toward the establishment of socialism. 
Additionally, the Second International showed the actual and potential power of the organized working class. It had tens of millions of members and supporters in affiliated parties, trade unions, cooperatives, cultural groups, and other formations. It also had numerous representatives in national, regional, and local parliaments and legislative bodies. Furthermore, it helped establish the principle of international working class unity and solidarity, exemplified by its creation of two dates on the calendar today, May Day, a day for demonstrating the power of the labor movement around the world, and International Women's Day, now celebrated on March 8th. In addition to these strengths, however, there were also important weaknesses and, and contradictions. In the book's introduction, I recount a number of these, including the Second International's uh, decentralization that Eric referred to, um, which I, I think at the, in the early stage, the uh, decentralization was a, a positive side to it, and it still maintained the various aspects, uh, you know, positive aspects. But over the time, it, it helped uh, lead to its lack of... Um, of, in, of international coordination and organization. There was also, the Second International also lacked a presence in the colonial world. It had an inadequate appreciation of the allies of the proletariat and a lack of clarity on the relationship between reform and revolution. But certainly the biggest weakness of the Second International was the gap, gap that developed between theory and practice, between word and deed. This gap became increasingly visible as the day-to-day -day work of most social democratic parties came to be dominated by reformist and non-revolutionary views. The gap between word and deed widened into a canyon with the onset of World War I in 1914. In clear violation of all the Second International's resolutions, the main parties of the Second International renounced their past pledges to oppose capitalist war and lined up behind their government's war efforts. The betrayal of 1914 marked the political death of the Second International. Even though it was formally relaunched in 1919, the new body bore little resemblance to the movement Engels had helped found. It now openly defended capitalist rule and spent much of its efforts on attacking the young revolution. Russian Revolution. Those socialists who remain true to the formally adopted revolutionary goals of the Second International, such as Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg, were forced to abandon it and work to form a new movement, which eventually became the Third International, the Communist International. But here I want to stress something that's usually overlooked. Even though Lenin and Luxembourg used the harshest of terms to, to label the betrayal of socialism committed by the Second International's leaders, the Second International's resolutions were never renounced. On the contrary, Lenin and Luxembourg would refer to how the majority leadership had betrayed these resolutions in practice, particularly the ones on militarism and war. And they repeatedly pointed to the gap between word and deed. The early Communist International, led by Lenin, set out to bridge this gap. It's worth noting that the manifesto of the First Congress in 1919 described the new movement as, quote, the international of the deed. Uh, the Communist International under Lenin is a whole other subject uh, that I won't get into here, although it, it's something um, you know I've devoted many years to. But 
it's I, I think the um, the question of the continuity that Eric raised is, is an important issue. Uh, continu- continuity doesn't mean a straight line in every single issue. It obviously there's there's many um, within the communist movement. It's uh, communist international itself. It went through uh, many um, fits and starts, uh, changes of uh, perspective under Lenin, um, but. It's, I think that the point is in order to, but you have to really understand the second international um, from which it came in order to be able to help evaluate uh, the communist international and what it became. Uh, there's one other aspect of under the social spanner that I wanna call attention to, which is uh, the point that Eric um, referred to on, the, on the, the growth of the opportunist wing that eventually really destroyed the Second International. Um, As an appendix to the book, there are a number of resolutions not adopted, but that were subjects of debated Congresses, and readers will thus be able to follow the debate around uh, several questions. One issue was colonialism. Uh, The opportunists criticized colonial abuses, but refused to condemn colonialism itself, and even asserted that it could have a, quote, civilizing mission among backward peoples. They also maintain that a socialist system itself would still have colonies. This reactionary view, which I've labeled socialist colonialism, was rejected by second international congresses, but the opportunist position nevertheless obtained a surprising amount of support. On the question of immigration, as Anne pointed out, uh, opportunists supported restrictions on the admission of immigrants, particularly non-white immigrants from Asia and Africa, toward whom some expressed openly racist views. Uh, Revolutionary socialists within the Second International, on the other hand, opposed such restrictions and viewed immigrants as fellow working people whose interests needed to be championed and who they believed could be one to the struggle. And that perspective is the one that uh, prevailed in the adopted resolutions. Although in answer to Anne's question, uh, regarding the labor movement in the United States, it's a pretty sorry um, history of uh, its stance towards things like the uh, Chinese and Japanese Exclusion Acts, uh, and others, particularly from the American Federation of Labor. But other formations like the IWW uh, took a much more progressive stand on these things. You also see debates occurring on the question of whether socialists should participate in capitalist governments, as Eric pointed out. Um, and the resolutions ultimately adopted oppose such participation. Through these debates, one could, could see the emergence within the Second International of three distinct currents in the years before 1914. A large opportunist right wing, a small but growing uh, revolutionary left wing, although fairly heterogeneous, and a center, a center grouping that sought to straddle the other two sides, defending Marxism theoretically, but increasingly adapting to the right wing in practice. I'll close by speaking of why this book is relevant today, which Eric raised, and and who it's directed to. Obviously, it will be of interest to historians and those studying the Second International's history. Uh, But the real target audience for Under the Socialist Banner are the thousands of young people and others now being drawn to socialism. Many of these individuals possess a thirst for knowledge about the movement, where it comes from and what it stands for. Yet relatively few know all that much about its history, 
nor to most fully appreciate the revolutionary thrust that's been at the heart of the socialist movement going back to Marx and, and Engels. Moreover, many of the subjects of the resolutions in this book remain issues we deal with today. I mentioned colonialism, immigration, uh, the socialist participation in capitalist governments, militarism and war. There are also resolutions on trade unions and workers' rights, resolutions on the importance of the struggle for democratic rights, socialist organization, international worker solidarity, public education, voting rights, the death penalty, women's emancipation. A lot has changed in the last century, of course, and, um, and there's obviously a lot of uh, things that the movement has uh, advanced on uh, uh, since then. But still, nevertheless, many of the most of the resolutions nevertheless stand up pretty well on a number of questions. Um, but it, it's, it's also the, the, the point that Eric raised on um, the relevancy of the revolutionary perspective that was raised in the, by, you know, with, by, by Engels, by the Second International at that time, subsequently in the early years of the Communist International. Um, I think that that's, uh, that's still just as relevant as it was today. The the capitalist system, as is increasingly obvious, is not going to solve the problems of the environment, the problems of war, the problems of the you know uh, um, police brutality, uh, oppression of women, um, and, and so forth. And the capitalist system is not going to reform itself. Uh, the question of the the types of strategy, discussions on strategy and tactics, that's those are the the real questions that we have to come uh, that the movement has to come back to, uh, and by looking at the socialist movement's history on these questions, not a guidebook, not going to find uh, you know all the answers, but it helps to raise the types of questions that we need to be asking ourselves in, in order to uh, to move the struggle forward. Um, so that's why these aren't just academic questions of interest to historians, um, but on the contrary, having a sense of where the movement comes from and where it's going can contribute greatly to the ongoing struggle and the ability to maintain a perspective. And my hope is that the book we're discussing today, today can help in that effort. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Uh, really appreciate it. So. We have some questions coming in from the audience. Definitely very happy um, to have other people. Please send in your questions. We'll try to address them. While we're waiting for that as well, I just wanted to give a second to see if any of the panelists wanted to respond to Mike, raise questions themselves. Uh, we have a little bit of intra-panelist discussion, if there's any comments. Uh, and then and then we'll kick it. Great. Uh, and then we'll kick it to... Um, the discussion uh, from the floor. So I see Lars, then Ann. Go ahead, Lars. No, yes, no. Okay. Uh, I wanted to, the, the one of the topics here is the reform revolution nexus and uh, uh, we might call the minimum program and the maximum program. 
Uh, and so I wanted to add a couple of thoughts. First on what was the logic uh, of, uh, of, of that uh, as set out? Now, my memory is that this was set out in, the, in, the, in these resolutions. Uh, but in any event, it was set out in various writings. Uh, and that is it's not just uh, we're revolutionary and don't care about reforms and we're reformists and don't care about revolution. It was a little more, shall we say, dialectical, which might mean confused. But the idea was this that it was precisely because we had our eye on the prize, on the final goal, we're the, we're the best fighters for the reforms. That is to say, so, so it's not like, oh, you're fighting reform and we're too good for that, we're too revolutionary for that. It's like we can do a better job of fighting for reform than the liberals can, than the conservatives can, than the opportunists can, because we, uh, we can see the connection between this particular reform, like it's going to increase worker education, political liberties, uh, migration, organization. We can see the connection between that and what is our final goal. So that leads to a paradoxical thing where, where, where the objection to opportunism is many times not what you're doing, but just the way you're doing it, the approach, you know, you, you think this is, this is, I'm for you. We're working for, to, to increase uh, workers' leisure time or worker safety, but, but you're doing it as an end in itself and we're doing it as a means to the, to the, to the, to the larger end. And that also means that, uh, you know, uh, when we say that it failed, the Second International failed. Well, it didn't get it didn't get have a socialist revolution, but it did get a lot of. Uh, 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 it did move the uh, uh, agenda forward on on the minimum program. We didn't get the maximum program, but the minimum program is nothing to sneeze at. And still today, the minimum program of the of the of the socialist of the of the, of the German Party say is is I think like a charter uh, that most of us. Uh, are, are, are agree with and are still fighting for. So the real question is, can we put the passion that they had uh, because of their belief in the revolution perspective, can we can we regain that in our fight for these for the minimum program, uh, which uh, Mike uh, relisted all the various issues that are still relevant? Thank you. Thanks, Lars. Uh, and and then I'll call myself and then we'll give Mike a chance to respond and then we'll go to questions from the floor. Go ahead, Anne. Okay, thanks. So I wanted to respond partly to uh, you, Eric, as well as Mike, on this question of uh, the majority, um, you know, the majority taking power. How, that I think you were perhaps arguing that, the, that history has shown us that it's impossible for the majority to take power needs to be done through some kind of more incremental um, approach. Perhaps I've wronged you there, but that's what I understood uh, by what you said. But from my point of view, I mean, like, I agree with what Lara said. They didn't, they didn't uh, have a socialist revolution, but they developed very many ideas and strategies and organisation which have continued on. So they've left us many lessons, I think, for the kind of organization we want to build today and the strategy we should think, type of strategy we should think about approaching. So I think it's not looking at history as a series of failures in that sense, but looking at it as a series of experiences that we can draw on and think about critically in order to develop our ideas for the here and now. And I think the issue that I see most strongly coming out of the resolutions 
the ones putting forward by the revolutionary Marxists from the Second International, is that of the working class taking an independent approach to questions of the day, like looking at immigration and going, well, well, we're not going to take that approach of, you know, uh, excluding this or that, but we need to have our own ideas. We can't just be against what the capitalist country states are saying. We've got to work out our own agenda. So that kind of agenda development, I think, is extremely important. And I think implicit in that is a revolutionary approach because like a revolutionary approach surely is all about working class on a mass basis, I think is essential. And internationally, working out its own attitudes to how it wants to progress in the here and now with the ultimate aim of, of superseding the um, system. So that would be my two-penny worth on that question. Thanks, Anne. Uh, I'll call myself real quick, then we'll get past it to Mike. So. Uh, Lars, I think that's helpful um, to clarify. Yes, it's, it's certainly the case that the revolutionary Marxists of the Second International did not, you know, feel themselves to be poo-pooing reform. This is certainly, you know, they, they, they didn't reject the fight for reforms. That being said, um, I think part of their orientation was disputed by other people who consider themselves Marxists in the Second International. You know, so some of the quote-unquote revisionists, you know, if you look at people like in Sweden, for instance, they, they really, they were like, we're, we're, we're just as Marxist as you all. We just have a different perspective because we're in a context in which, um, you know, isn't the same as Germany. There's maybe more space to pass some of our um, policies and certainly not the same as Russia. And so the tactics that flowed from really um, the German experience in particular, which I do think really shaped a lot of these resolutions, where for instance, you couldn't vote for any budget, like literally, like if you were a socialist, you couldn't vote for any budget, even if it included good things, because you're against the entire capitalist state, you couldn't join any government. You couldn't, you know, even if you had a, a, a short of uh, the socialist revolution to forcibly overturn and socialize the means of production. Um, and so the response from, you know, other people in the Second International, many of whom were centrist or opportunist, if you want to use that term, but I, I don't think that's actually that helpful because these positions were, I think, actually much more fluid, was if you're serious about fighting for reforms, um, part of that means being willing to, for instance, take local power in parts of Germany in which there was more universal suffrage, or being willing to participate in government to pass some of these reforms, or being willing to make some compromises with other parties, um, or sometimes toning down the emphasis on the final revolutionary goal to foreground the fight for some of the things in the here and now. So these were real debates in which it's not so obvious that the people who took a more moderate approach were just like sellouts. They were looking at the world around them and they're saying, look, um, it turns out the, the sort of like incipient majority for the, the positions that you're articulating isn't arriving. Maybe we should adjust our tactics. Maybe we need to build up more strength to be able to win that majority. And so I do think that it's just worth for um, others to look at some of the subsequent experience, including from, in particular, the Swedish Social Democrats who were opportunists, but ended up building the strongest labor movement, you know, certainly not just electoral in the world, uh, winning the most reforms, transforming capitalism beyond what anybody in the Second International could have anticipated. And surely they didn't, you know, they didn't go all the way, but nobody's did. And you could argue that they went the furthest. So 
the including in the 70s, almost posing the question of uh, economic democracy as a practical goal. So it seems to me that there's a lot of a rich tradition that we shouldn't just um, assume that the non-Lenin and Luxembourg wing of the Second International has nothing to teach us about what um, possible strategies and tactics uh, we should look to today. Um, go ahead, Mike. Um, okay, there, there's a, a couple of things I think it might be worth talk, mentioning. One is the on the question of reforms. Um, I, I I mean, there's the 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 state the statement which I think is is accurate is accurate and uh, in the broadest sense, which is that reforms are are byproducts of the revolutionary struggle, um, which and if you um, it, 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 it revolutionary struggle in the sense of the you know of the revolution of the mass mass struggles by by working people, which is the case of you know every significant. Uh, reform in the and and U.S. history uh, comes from mass struggles by working people and its allies. Um, you know whether it's the um, you know going back to you know the the, the whole the history of the of the U.S. And one thing we've also learned is that. Um, no reform is secure as long as capitalism exists, because when it feels it's in a position to uh, erode or uh, eventually eliminate them, it you know it does. And certainly, that's uh, Eric pointed out. Sweden that's certainly been the case of you know there were all the gains of social you know social democracy in Sweden. That um, many of them have are in the process of being of being eroded or reversed. I mean, we have a perfect example right now, which is the right to uh, legal to legal abortion in the U.S. How how when the uh, the capitalist system <laughs> decides that um, it 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 can can it's been eroding it and eating away for for decades and it's still doing that. Um, you know, one of the you know I think it's um, you know I mean there's you know the points of tactics strategy you know many of those are there there these are these are crucial questions that um, that you know need to be discussed and raised but. Before that, really, the starting point should be is what it is that you're striving for, um, and w once once you have an, an, uh, objectives, then you you begin to figure out that t tactics and strategy to get you there. Now, the Second International, um, it you know you can look back at the record and you can see its strong points and its weak points on these questions but but that's that was its 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 starting point it looked at what it was aiming for and then what tactics to uh, get us there on the question of whether or not a revolutionary perspective is realistic um re realistic or not I'll, let, let's turn that around and say is I certainly think it's much more unrealistic to expect the capitalist system to solve the, you know, the the problems that that are confronting us right now. Um, so I'll stop there. Thanks, Mike. So we have some uh, questions, and to panelists, thanks, Anna and Lars. We have some questions from the audience. Um, we have from Alan Gibson. 
Um, question about the division between word and deed of the Second International. What is Mike and others' views on the lesson that the Bolsheviks were to draw in terms of the need for separate organization of revolutionary Marxists? So I, maybe that's two questions there. One is, uh, what maybe what explains the, the division between word and deed in the Second International? And then there's a follow-up uh, question to that is, what, what, what does that imply as far as the question of uh, how revolutionary Marxists should organize themselves? Maybe, Mike, do you want to um, do you want to respond to that, and then we'll see if any of the other panelists want to chime in. Um, well, the, uh, I mean, I, I, I think the, the the division, the gap between word and deed was, you know, the, uh, uh, I think was the was the central, really the central weakness of the Second International, and certainly the the main weakness that. Uh, Lenin uh, pointed to. Um, uh, so it's, you know, I, I think in, in terms of, um, and I, I think it is connected to the rise of a, um, you know, what, 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 you know, this term, the, the opportunist wing, um, which, which is sort of a shorthand it's actually a much more complex history of the the evolution of the Social Democratic Party in Germany, uh, and you know a number of there, there's many specific features, but I think it's obviously it's it's much of it is related to that of um, the defense uh, um, uh, you know defense of Marxist the uh, uh, Marxist theory, and and then dividing it from um, increasingly divided from from practice. People like this is something that Rosa Luxemburg uh, had often had drew attention to. In terms of the organization of revolutionary Marxists, um, the uh, I mean maybe one thing is that as just from the standpoint of Lenin, um, you know who. As you see in the book, you know he was he was quite he was he was in there. He was at, at he participated in um, you know at congresses and he was a member of the International Socialist Bureau for for several years. Um, but as he began, he and he and others sought to organize the the coalescing left wing within the Second International as um, uh, although. In the years before, really going back to between, between 1907 and 1910, uh, clearly they developed their you know their, their thinking at you know at the outset of the First World War, but the need to to organize the you know the revolutionary Marxist forces, uh, yeah, a collaboration uh, between them. So I mean, there's a lot more that could be said about that, which some of the others may want to do. Great, thanks. Uh, Anne, Lars, do you uh, have thoughts on this question, uh, word and deed, and then the party question? Uh, yeah, I'll have a, okay. Go ahead. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll try to make this short, but uh, I, th this may have, perspective may be a little bit on the uh, on Eric's side uh, of the thing, I don't know, you <laughs> can tell me. But uh, there, there's something, that, there was a, a 
a formula. I call it a merger formula. Kautsky formulated it uh, in its classical case, but but everybody understood it. It was social democracy is the merger of socialism, i.e. the end goal, and the worker movement, i.e. the fight for militant uh, uh, reforms or whatever, things that the, that the working class could see that it needed and, and, and you know, here and now. And, and so the whole thing was a, was a wager that those two could go together. But what if uh, you know, what if we're in, a, in an environment that it, that just doesn't work? That uh, uh, that um, uh, what I call the the dilemma of a revolutionary party in a non-revolutionary times or a non-revolutionary context. Uh, uh, and there, if that's if that's the case, maybe it was just not this weaknesses or uh, that, but just it, it wasn't going to work. It just uh, it, the, that merger was not going to take place. And so, what happens when the merger doesn't take place is you have sort of revolutionary sectarian types sort of talking about revolution over in this corner, and then in the other corner you have uh, uh, reformists in the in the in the sense of. Uh, Willing to do things like, like support the governments and you know to 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 just get uh, the reforms uh, within the system and even give up challenging it or or having wider perspectives uh, than the system. So. So then, you know, uh, Lenin saw this problem in some sense. Lenin and the others of the left wing there, and uh, so they had they had an international that was going to solve the problem. Uh, by eliminating the opportunists, the purging the opportunists and treating the opportunists as as the anarchists had been back in the 1890s. Namely, you're not social democrats. Go away. You're not part of this anymore. And they were sort of overdid the purging part. And that's one of the one of the businesses that they one of the bad uh, heritages into the Communist Party. But the, my point here is that the Communist parties faced ultimately the same dilemma. They were re- in, in Western Europe. Western Europe. They were ultimately uh, revolutionary parties in a non-revolutionary context, uh, uh, unlike communist parties in some other parts of the world where they were in, in more revolutionary contexts. So, uh, so again, then when that happens, there's going to be this, not a merger, but a divorce between the people who are interested in revolution and the people who are interested in reforms. So maybe this is a kind of glum and pessimistic thing to say when we're talking about activists and fighting today, but uh, we have to decide whether that, you know, whether that's um, what do we do uh, to solve this this underlying objective dilemma, which is not solved by saying weaknesses or mistakes or this and that and other thing. Thank you. Thanks, Lars. Uh, and did you want to chime in? Um, not. Not particularly on that question. Okay. There were some other questions yeah. that come in. Can I t- can I speak now on them, or do you want me to wait? Sure, we'll, we'll get to them. I'll, I'll, I'll raise them. Uh, we'll just do one question at a time. I think it'll be get confusing if we jump back and forth too much. Um, I'll I'll be very brief. My two cents on this is yeah, I agree with Lars. Um, it seems to me that the problem was just the vast majority of workers weren't as revolutionary as hoped for, and so reformism emerged because. The conception wasn't actually at that time uh, that we should drop the fight for socialism, but that in order to get the majority, we need to eventually win for socialism. We need to strengthen the workers' movement. We need to show in practice that we're able to uh, make the changes. We need to make the types of reforms within capitalism that will strengthen the working class so that we can eventually have the power to overthrow capitalism. 
um, you know, through democratic means. And, you know, so it, it seems to me that that's still the problem we face today. And it's not um, resolved by saying we're just going to have a party just for revolutionaries that just kind of punts on the question, which is still the kind of reformist majority. And it seems to me that uh, we should take really seriously the um, limitations of the revolution approach. And certainly it's the case that it's very hard to overthrow capitalism no matter what. But one could imagine, it seems more plausible to me, the uh, election to the existing state of some sort of like workers uh, party that pushes beyond the bounds of um, what capitalists themselves want. Because, and I think this is ultimately, I was just on this, it seems to me that one of the under theorized parts of the second international is really what is the role of democracy within the capitalism? Is, is it just sort of a sham or uh, is it just sufficient because it gives you the space to fight for socialism? That was kind of the second international view was uh, it's important primarily because it gives us the space to fight for our views. Um, arguably, there's a more robust sense in which democracy, there's a contradiction between the existing democratic forms of state and the capitalist system. And you have to lean on those contradictions. And that's the kind of path towards socialism. It seems to me that that at least is a perspective worth taking seriously and not sort of dismissed as um, like a utopian underestimation of capitalist uh, resistance. Okay. Um, the questions from the audience, we've got a lot of really good ones. Um, we're going to go with one that uh, kind of follows up on this specifically, which is um, from Michael. Can the panelists discuss why Kautzi, Lenin, Luxembourg, et cetera, didn't want to join capitalist governments? Was it pure dogmatism or was it based on the practical needs of the struggle? Um, anybody want to join in on that? Go ahead, Anne. Yeah, well, I suppose what I want to say really is that they were arguing that the entry into a capitalist government would essentially mean um, in government that they would be carrying out the dictates of capital and that they would be forced to do so, that it was inevitable that they would be put in that position. And, and I think that that was quite correct because I think you can see time and time again, historically, where socialists or Marxists or communists have entered into coalition governments with other capitalists, with capitalist parties, that they've ended up being, you know, the ones who are, uh, rather than being the ones who stand up and, and, and uh, manage to win over uh, capitalist ministers to their causes, that they're the ones who are defeated. Um, you know, we've seen that recent years with Syriza um, and with other uh, situations where left have gone into government. So I think that that's a very important question. I mean, I think it doesn't mean that you don't stand for election. You should stand for election in as many places as you can and put forward your views. But I think... I think the idea, which has been raised also um, by Eric there, is like getting into government, pushing capitalism further than it wants to go. I think that that's possible once you don't go into government. I think once you're in government, you're there. What else is the government there for except to carry out the dictates of the of the majority of the ruling class? So I I see that that's very. I see that that's an important question of principle, was an important question of principle, 
for the uh, socialists of the Second International. Um, and I think that just like linked to that on the question of democracy, I think the question of democracy is extremely important, not because there are, in that sense, two different kinds of democracy. I don't really think that I would describe capitalist states as democratic as such. I think to the extent that they're democratic, it's because of the um, pressure from below, you know, in terms of universal suffrage, in terms of, you know, questions of, uh, you know, I can talk about Ireland, gay rights, gay marriage, women's rights, abortion rights. I mean, the Irish state didn't suddenly wake up one morning in their collective wisdom and decided that they were pro-women's uh, right to choose. They were against that. But the movements obviously um, pressurised them. So it's become a more secular state in recent years because of the pressure of these campaigns. So um, I think that that, 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 that question is, is really important. Um, and I think that democracy is the only way that the working class can rule and therefore must be something that we pay a lot of attention to. Um, and, you know, like as people have described, uh, Lars described and Mike described, man, the myriad of issues that were taken up in the Second International, you know, that these questions are all questions of concern to the working class. And just finally, on that point, linking back to what um, was said there earlier, um, um, Eric mentioned the working class weren't revolutionary enough, but I don't know. I mean, perhaps people can come back about this. To me, it doesn't really seem that the working class were the problem. I think it was the leaders, the problem of leadership. And that's an, an issue I think that we should discuss as well. The question of leadership in the Second International, um, what was the role of leadership that you know tried to make concessions that led the movement into the war, um, into voting for war credits, etc. So uh, the question of, I suppose, accountability and leadership. And uh, thank you. Thanks, Anne. Uh, Lars or Mike? I see Mike. Go yeah. ahead. Um, Mike and then Lars. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the uh, things in the Second International that was discussed was you know, was the question of uh, Bernstein, who, which 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 is the uh, you know raised the the idea of revisionism, um, which there's obviously there's 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 a big discussion in the Second International, but his perspective on on reforming capitalism was based on the premise that. Uh, capitalism could overcome its uh, its contradictions. It, it could, you know, keep advancing, becoming a more humane system, uh, gradually uh, solving some of some of the problems. And uh, I, I, if you look at the the record of the last hundred and 20 years, I, I don't think that that argument has much uh, um, has much weight. Um, the other the other question in the Second International, the question of Millerandism um, of, of of joint of socialists joining uh, capitalist governments. Um, the point is to to avoid chaining. The capitalist class likes to use, uh, the, you know, the, the ruling powers like to use uh, people to do to 
build support for it. If it can get support from um, uh, opportunists or uh, uh, workers organizations, um, they'll they'll use it. Whether it's a question of uh, making use of uh, various labor unions to do their do their work or work within government. Um, but he, here, I, I think it's 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 useful to really take a look at. Um, th- there are some examples of um, uh, socialists and and government gov- elected to capitalist government. I, um, the most real one example was Chile under Allende in uh, the early 1970s, um, where it was. Uh, it was a whole mobilization of working people that that took place, and what the the powers that be, the capitalists, the landlords, uh, their masters in Washington, and and so forth, uh, it, it didn't matter that they they won that socialist you know revolution re, you know uh, self proclaimed revolutionary socialists won the elections, they. Change the rules of the game, and you know, murderous, uh, uh, yeah, with murderous consequences, and uh, and I think lar- to a large extent, uh, the, the working people were not sufficiently prepared and organized to meet uh, to, uh, to to meet that, which was a problem. But it, it shows us what uh, I mean. We we just have to look at uh, you know some of the what uh, Donald Trump is is raising of. And the prospect of, okay, the, if if he's not elected, then the election is is phony. How you know how they they change? There's the the capitalist class doesn't have a religious respect for elections if if it's not going to advance their interests. Uh, I'm just going to have a one minute a historical note about the uh, about the joining the government, which is a uh, one reason Lenin Lenin uh, did hold that view, as as the questioner said, and that <clears throat> may have been one of the reasons why they Bolsheviks won in 1917, because that was a central issue uh, in that in that time in that place. It's uh, this is, doesn't mean that it was it would have been good for other times and other places, but in that in that time in that place. Uh, the 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 uh, socialists joining the government quickly, very quickly, discredited the, those socialists very much, uh, and and the big the message, the central message of the Bolsheviks throughout the year was, uh, uh, we need a government that has no. And no coalition, no nothing from these uh, these these capitalists and these other uh, landowners, and until we get that, nothing's going to happen. And and because the country was rapidly falling apart and, uh, during those months, that argument looked like a good one. So in that particular case, in any event, the strategic or tactical. Uh, insistence on not coalition and on rejecting any uh, uh, play in the government paid off big time as a tactic, which may have led to overestimating it a bit in other contexts. I'll put in my two cents uh, and then we'll continue. Part in, in response to the question that was asked, I mean, part of it had to do with the context of Germany as well. The, the German state, the parliament had relatively little power, so there was not a big benefit to joining the government. You weren't gonna be able to pass the types of transformative reforms that have actually been subsequently passed 
in huge parts of the world uh, since, you know, as far as national healthcare systems, uh, decommodifying huge parts of the economy, uh, there was much less space in an autocracy, semi-autocracy like the German state, to say nothing of Russia. So yeah, in certain cases, that type of approach, very intransient approach made sense, but it, it didn't have much uh, sort of, uh, it didn't seem as compelling either to workers or socialists in places that were more democratic. And it's just worth keeping in mind, in the era of the Second International, universal suffrage was still like, totally exceptional, including in Europe, to say nothing of the world. And so the context of universal suffrage, once it was won, this is one of the ironies, is once these gains were won, it in some ways undermined, it did some ways undermine the uh, appeal for a more revolutionary and transient approach. And, you know, but in response to Mike, to your questions, you can point to uh, all sorts of governments that didn't just sort of subserve, uh, didn't, um, subsume themselves to the dictates of capital. Just think about even some of the pink tide governments, which are things that uh, governments under capitalism, they haven't overthrown capitalism, but which have made a significant uh, difference in the lives of millions of people. And we should just be clear, like according to the strategy of the Second International, that was a no-go because they weren't opposed just to like popular front governments, governments, liberal capitalist regime. They were opposed to any government that wasn't uh, participating in any government that wasn't uh, to implement the socialist revolution. And that just seems to me to clearly not have been borne out. And uh, you can point to all the Scandinavian countries as well, in which there were workers' parties elected to government that used those governments to push, you know, real transformative reforms that had, didn't go all the way, but that made a real difference. And it just, I don't actually think it's the case. Uh, people should look it up. Uh, the data is quite clear. The welfare state uh, on the whole, despite neoliberalism in most countries of the world, including the United States, hasn't been just completely returned to before. It's proven to be relatively sticky and robust. And so there has been a cumulative living standards uh, on the whole for the last century for most people uh, because of the struggles of workers, both in and outside the state, have uh, generally the, the, have generally increased, uh, even in many countries under neoliberalism. Uh, so it's it's not as so clear that just the, the trend towards crisis and uh, immiseration is as uh, clear as certainly Marx and Kautsky at times envisioned. The last question we have is, can panelists speak to why they think there's been a return to debating the legacy of the Second International in the past few years? Is this just a trend in the US or is it also bubbling up elsewhere? Um, what do... Would anyone want to start off um, from the panelists on this question? Yeah. I will. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, talking to me? Okay. Yes, go ahead, Lars. You're, yeah. Uh, I, well, this ahead. is maybe historical or maybe, but, and I think, by the way, it's in at least uh, in England, uh, the UK, and I think generally the kinds of questions, yeah, France. Uh, maybe even Russia these days, I don't know. But uh, I think there's interest in this all around the world, really. Uh, and one is that uh, there there used to be a, such a, uh, a, a contrast between Lenin and the Second International. And this is a way of thinking that goes back to uh, a sort of the, a double origin around uh, right after the revolution, around 1920, this fourth, the double origin, uh, as I now see it, uh, one is uh, on the Western side with people like Lukács, Korsh, Gramsci, uh, who uh, didn't know the Second International that well. They 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 joined the they were young people who joined the movement because of the Russian Revolution, and uh, so they made a they made a big contrast between uh, Lenin and the Second International. And then from the R Russian side, Lenin, uh, Stalin did the same thing. Stalin knew better. 
I'm convinced. But in his Foundations of Leninism in 1924, he, he, he defines Leninism on every single issue as here's what the bad Second International said, here's what the good Lenin said. And he completely ignores uh, the, uh, uh, no, the roots that we've been talking about all through this thing. So once you see that, once you see that this is not a good once you see that you can't make this contrast between Lenin and Second International, because among other things, Lenin's uh, continued admiration for Kautsky is, as what Mike was saying, the continued admiration for these resolutions, like the Basel Resolution, the, the Basel Resolution, I've it, was like was like extremely important to Lenin and and one that he referred to all the time. So once you see that that uh, that that way of looking at it is just not can't be done anymore. Uh, you have to go back and re-adjudicate re- 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 these questions. Thanks, Lars. Uh, Anne, can you give us the view from Ireland and elsewhere? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he, uh, like it is certainly something that the sections of the left are looking at here. Um, and I think that perhaps the reason is we're looking at it because of books that have been more recently published. There's certainly been a healthy move to reinterpreting and going back to look at it. I mean, in terms of what Lars was saying there, my own research on the Genotiel shows that many articles written in the early uh, 1920s were very uh, condemnatory towards the Second International and indeed say, you know, it was nothing but a talking shop, which obviously there was that problem, but uh, as Mike has said, but it wasn't all that had to be said. But I think that part of that was because of the fact that they were in struggle with them at the time. But that's kind of been institutionalized, that approach, and obviously developed by Stalin. But no, now today there is much more of a debate. And it is, it's extremely important. I'm, I'm pleased about it. Um, okay, thank you. We'll give Mike the last word, so I'll, I'll go real quick. Um, my two cents is the main reason why there's a debate today is twofold. One is the collapse and implosion, in most cases, of both the uh, of the main Leninist uh, traditions. So, you know, the, the most important of which were the communist parties, but then also uh, Maoist parties and Trotskyist uh, organizations and parties. Like very few of these organizations have managed to uh, thrive, uh, let alone, or and let alone to, let, have managed to survive, let alone thrive. So there's been a general crisis of that tradition, and that's led, I think, certain people, uh, many people, to be open um, to rethinking this. In particular, and I think Lars's work in, in particular has really uh, pushed these questions to fore. So um, we should note that. Um, contribution sort of sparked a lot of rethinking. And that's combined with just the recent experience of the left in which um, it's been, I think, clearer than maybe before that just movements on their own aren't enough. There's been an experience of, um, you know, with all their strengths and limitations of the pink tide, of Syriza, of Corbyn and Bernie, which has led more, I think, socialists today to be open to the idea of uh, systematically combining movement and electoral transformation in a way that seems to point to some of the legacy of the Second International more than the legacy of the Third International. So I think it's a combination of those two things has made the um, debates very fruitful. Um, and you know we're not going to solve them tonight. Mike, uh, you get the final word, and then we'll close out. 
Um, well, I'll, I'll agree with with Eric on a lot of what he, uh, some of the things he just said, which is that the the uh, the, 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 the contradiction between the, um, the the growth of the of the so the various social movements and the rejection of capitalism and the the sort of the the, the loss of any sense of of Real continuity with uh, of, of the of the, of the socialist movement, the movement of working people over the last time, and there's been a, an effort to try to uh, reconnect with that, which is you know why you know this book has um, uh, you know which, which I think you know can can play play a role in it, and and because it raises a lot of the same types of questions we've been discussing and debating here now about uh, what it, what it, what 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 is what is going to be necessary to bring about the type of social change that's necessary to save humanity, um, and how can we get there? Um, and that that's where the the uh, not just going back to the works of Marx, Engels, and you know others, but the whole movement that's been been organized internationally to try to carry out this perspective, uh, to look at what lessons it has, positive and negative, and that's uh, you know that's what that's what th this event is of. That's what these books are for. That's what you know all all of us, all the panelists here have been. Uh, devoting ourselves to is to helping to pre uh, present this history and these lessons. So um, that's who that's who our target audience is, and um, ho hopefully it will you know help facilitate that. So thanks again uh, to Anne, to Lars, and above all to Mike um, for. It, writing the and compiling this uh, fantastic contribution. Um, everyone who's watching, go out and get it right now uh, before you forget. Uh, we also want to thank Haymarket Books for making the whole thing happen. Uh, you know, without Haymarket, a lot of these types of debates and discussions wouldn't be as accessible to so many people. And so we want to thank all of the folks at Haymarket for making the event happen tonight, for getting the book out there, for doing the technical back end. Thanks to all of you behind the scenes. And with that being said, uh, go out and change the world, everybody. Uh, have a great night and uh, we'll see you uh, next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.